When Perry tossed the idea of writing a column my way, which is the written form of this podcast, I found myself not for the first time at the edge of uncertainty, questioning not just what could I write, but if I even possessed the ability to put pen to paper. I mean, his directive was simple enough, right from the place that I talk from, that offbeat space that jolts artists into a reconsideration of their thoughts and perceptions about the enigmatic life we lead as creators. The challenge then was to offer something of value, something that could be genuinely useful to you. Over the years, the stories, of which this is the first, have woven through conversations with tattoo artists from every corner of the globe. Tattoo artists whose work graces your Instagram feed in conventions, hotel bars, and casual social exchanges. Surprisingly, at least to me, I guess, they've expressed gratitude for my seemingly unconventional advice. Advice that, when applied, has acted as a catalyst for them to carve out truly remarkable careers. Now, I can't claim credit for the beauty of their artwork, but I can confidently say that I've played a modest yet impactful role in shaping the careers of many of them. If you know me from that tattoo show, this column slash podcast will probably feel like quite a change of pace, and it is. Unlike the free-flowing live conversation that is that tattoo show, these are my thoughts, collected, edited and presented in the most coherent way possible, so that you can get the most out of the advice that I have to share. I've attempted to draw a straight line through my life and pull at only the best threads along the way. Now, of course, that's nearly impossible for any of us, and I'm no different, so the names and the sequence of events may have been changed to suit the story and the message. Like I said, it's mostly true. I'm sharing these stories with you, hoping that you can harness them in a similar way to my friends. The frame of reference is my own life experience, but it's mostly irrelevant and only mentioned for context. I found it easier for people to catch my drift if they have a sense of where I was when I learnt the advice that I'm sharing. Just don't go thinking it's some sort of autobiography. These initial stories mark the genesis of my journey and the worldview that I carried into my tattoo booth. It's a perspective that's occasionally at odds with the accepted norms and practices of many tattooists. Why? Well, because they stem from lessons learnt in a different life. One spent navigating a cruel and shallow money trench, the long plastic hallway of the music business and the blood-on-the-carpet disinterested realm of corporate graphic design. So take from these narratives what you need and leave what you don't. In the seasons to come, I'll unravel experiences from my tenure as a tattooist, hopefully sharing the wisdom gleaned from encounters with the many eloquent and astute artists I've been fortunate enough to meet. Of course, I'll also delve into the darker alleys, recounting the cautionary tales spawned from the myriad of unsavoury characters and bad actors that populate the underbelly of the tattoo world. But before we journey into those depths, let's begin at the beginning. I began my journey in a recording studio, a place where every note feels like a whispered secret and the magic hangs in the air like cigarette smoke. If you've never stepped foot inside one, allow me to paint the scene for you. It's a space where instruments tell stories and where the air hums with the anticipation of capturing something truly extraordinary. But this is not just a story of guitar strings and studio sessions. It's a single chapter. The first chapter of a story that starts in these hallowed halls but ends somewhere very, very different. Intrigued? Let me explain. 
Back in the studio, there were no rock star solos awaiting me. Instead, I found myself cast as the humble orchestrator of tea, the wrangler of cables, and the errand runner for the maestros gracing the studio's sacred space. In the unassuming cadence of these everyday tasks, a realisation hung in the air like the lingering resonance of a perfectly played chord. Yeah, I was the novice amidst the virtuosos, but I was also the understudy in a room brimming with seasoned performers. Being their gopher wasn't a defeat. It was actually a prelude to a transformative moment in my life. It was the first of many times that I would beg to differ and look at the situation from a different angle, asking myself, how could this be the best thing that's ever happened to me? And that humility became my silent companion, an unassuming guide through the intricate rhythms of studio life. Each cable I coiled and every cup of tea that I brewed became a note in the symphony of my education. A humble acknowledgement that every great musician, no matter how proficient, once navigated those clumsy early chords of their own journey. Tea sessions and string changes evolved into impromptu masterclasses, where each cup was accompanied by a nugget of wisdom. What started as a job as a humble tape-op became a backstage pass to the inner workings of musical genius. These maestros weren't just artists, they were mentors. My mentors and they were willing to share the secrets of their craft with this scentless apprentice. In the midst of this sonic tapestry, I discovered the beauty of practice, the magic of attention to detail and the art of acceptance. I also met, for the first time, the hard choices that are the realities of almost every creative's daily life. You see, as well as tea making, gardening and the occasional bit of decorating for my boss's wife, one of my other responsibilities was to run Studio 2. And that sounds great, right? Well, Studio 2 was once a garage, and it was primarily used for voiceovers to record those annoying local radio adverts that puncture the airwaves in between hits of the 70s and old Kylie songs. It was my job, once or twice a week, to record about 40 or so spots, set them to a bit of library music, and mix them. But the atmosphere of Studio 2 was very different to that of Studio 1. In Studio 2, it was all, that'll do, and close enough. This was a stark contrast to the hours real pros would spend sculpting and crafting the perfect part for every single bar, sometimes for days. All I heard in Studio 2 was, shit in, shit out, let's get lunch. And it was during this time that I realised that all creativity exists in a push-pull universe, where commercial pressures and paydays slowly erode an artist's integrity. Little by little, as this realisation dawned, I knew that it was time to move on. If you don't care about your art, why should anyone else? No radio jingle, no matter how catchy it is, will ever change the world. But rock and roll might. And so, the tale of tea, cables and errands unfolded, not as a mundane routine, but as an intro to a song called Discovery. The recording studio where I began as an outsider, became the backdrop for two very profound lessons, both of which extended beyond the confines of music and permeated the very essence of my existence. What I learnt was that in the grand symphony of life, talent may open doors, but it's the quiet virtues of humility and gratitude that keep them ajar. And that's my story of being an apprentice. Uh, I didn't really apprentice as a tattooist, I apprenticed as, as I've told you, I apprenticed as a sound engineer. You might be thinking at this point, okay, so what's the, what's the kind of takeaway, what's the nugget of wisdom, the 
the great piece of advice that you can give me. And I'm, I'm trying to uh, put it together in a, a kind of straight line so that this makes uh, as much sense for you as I possibly can. I tend to tell people this story, particularly creative people, and in the last 15 years, mostly tattooists. I tend to be telling them this story when we're talking about uh, acceptance or when they've been accused of uh, being entitled or um, a bit up themselves or something like that. As much as I'd love for you to believe that I got this perfect when I was a kid and then when I was a tape op and that, you know, I instantly understood humility and gratitude. I think like most people, it's a difficult concept particularly for creative people, to really get your head round and understand initially. And over the years, I've come to understand it better. Uh, I don't think I fully understood that idea when I was 16 and working in a studio. I think the thing that probably did me the biggest favour was that, quite honestly, I didn't have a lot of options. So it was like, hey, suck it up, buttercup, you've got to get on with it, you know? Um, and I think that helped, if I'm honest. But over the years, I've come to understand the concept better and get my head around it and make some decisions about it. And I've noticed it with creative people, why and when they tend to struggle with this idea. And I think it comes down to two problems. The first of which is that when you make stuff, whether that's music or art or tattoos or whatever really, can be baking, I guess, nobody sees the journey up to that point. So nobody sees all of the sacrifice and the effort that you've put in to get to that point. You're just there. For me personally, I had to work as a gardener at the studio for nearly a year before I even got to the kettle. You know, so by the time I get to the kettle and the cables a year in, I felt like I'd worked really hard to get to that point. And you kind of just turn up and they go, well done. Well, I feel, in fact, I don't think anybody even said well done. <laughs> I don't think anybody even said hello. They just went, the kettle's there, the cables are over there, coil them up and get the kettle on. And you kind of feel a little bit uh, despondent, you know, and it's, I've, I've done all this work to get to the door, you know. The example that I tend to give to people is you might have spent your entire life up to 18 or 19 to get a job in a tattoo studio drawing, and then you get the job in the tattoo studio as an apprentice, and all of that work has only equaled step one. You've done all of that work just to get to the bottom rung of the ladder. And it can feel like a bit of a letdown. I certainly felt a little bit let down having mowed the lawn for a year to only get as far as the kettle and the cable drawer, you know. And I think that can, you can come off a little, I guess, you know, the modern way of saying it is entitled. I don't think it's entitlement. I think you've, you've put all this work in and nobody recognises it. And you've made a lot of sacrifices and you've put effort and struggle. And it's hard to be grateful and humble at that point. But I think if you can understand that concept of like, yeah, you did all this work just to get here. And now you, you know, you've got to do even more work to get further along. Because the truth of it is, that's every stage of a creative person's life. People tend to look at what we do and they don't see any of the effort and the sacrifice and the hours spent drawing or practicing your instrument or anything like that they just see the finished thing you know the example that i use a lot of the time is you know you can listen to an album of music that's i don't know 40 minutes long if it was on vinyl you get to the end of it and you go yeah it's quite good i quite, I quite like that the musician 
will be, what do you mean? It's quite good. What you don't know is that it took them a year to write it, three months to rehearse it, three months to record it, and two months to mix it. All you heard was 40 minutes of music and went, yeah, it's, it's quite good. But they put all this work in. And, you know, like video game designers, they can put 10 years of their life into making a video game. And then when it comes out and people go, yeah, it's okay. It's not as good as that other game that I played last week. They understandably get a bit upset. None of us know the effort that goes into making that amazing thing. You know, uh, you watch a movie that lasts two hours. It could have taken two years to edit, you know. (laughs) And I think that's just the truth of it for us. And we just have to understand that, you know, that people... Uh, they look at and they listen to what we do. They just enjoy the art, the finished final art. They don't see any of that stuff. And I guess that's the second problem, right, is that people only see the finished thing. They don't see the, you know, the hours of preliminary sketches or the drawing over the top of, you know, the pencil trace and then the ink drawing and then the filling in the colour and all that sort of stuff to get to the the piece of artwork that, that can then become a tattoo. Nobody sees that. You present your client with a design, they go, yeah, it's quite good. You know, <laughs> it might have taken you two or three days to put that together and a week to come up with the idea. And that, unfortunately, is the truth of what we do for all creative people. It doesn't matter what you make or how you make it. That that's, that's just how people see it. They consume the finished thing. And so it's difficult then for us to, to be humble for what we have and grateful for what we have. And then when we're not, and when, when we say to people, what do you mean it's just okay? I put hours into that. People's normal response is, you know, but think a lot of yourself, don't you? And of course we don't. Another old friend of mine, imposter syndrome. How do you maintain humility and gratitude? Believe me, I think it's a, it's a difficult one. I think it's a key concept to understand because it makes every stage of life a little bit easier if you can do that. But it's not the easiest thing to understand immediately. I think the best advice I could give you about that is perspective is the key. Of sort of looking at it and going, look at what I'm doing now. You know, I look at my portfolio sometimes and go back and go, even the simplest of stuff that I do now is infinitely better than what I could have done 15 years ago. And so I, you get an idea of how far you've come. And then it's it's good to be grateful for that stuff. What you have to remember is we're inching along this journey. So we don't see the growth quite like people do that might look at our work and then not look at it for two years and see this gulf of, oh my God, you got really good, you know. Um, some of the stuff I've shown you in this episode, you know, which is from my early vlogs from like 2015. And I put just as much effort into those vlogs um, as I do into that tattoo show and this show. But I've got better at it because I've been doing it for a little bit longer and I understand it a little bit better. So that stuff now doesn't look that good. It doesn't sound that good. But that's because I've moved along the journey. When I look back at that stuff, I can get a look at how much better I've got at it. So then I can be grateful for the opportunity to make that stuff. Tattooing gave me some money to buy cameras and some stuff to film and a load of people that didn't mind being on camera. And I learned from that. And now I can make things that hopefully look a little bit better and sound a little bit better. And when I was in the studio, one of the things that really bummed me out was the moment I could operate a mixing desk. They pulled me out of Studio One and dumped me in Studio Two, making these terrible jingles. And I can remember saying to the the head engineer, you know, how disappointed I was. What he said to me was, what you've got to remember is the process of recording a voice and balancing it with a backing track is exactly the same as taking a vocal and balancing that with a music track. And you're going to record 
40 of those this week, 40 next week, 40 the following week. And by the end of the month, you'll have done, you know, just about 200 of these adverts, which means that you've done the process 200 times. Those skills that you, you're acquiring little by little that you don't notice, six months from now, you'll be absolutely expert at doing it. And those skills that you acquire, you'll use all the way through your recording career. In fact, I'm using them right now, you know, to record my own voice and EQ it and make it sound acceptable. You don't realise as you're learning these skills that, that it's important and you could be easily not be particularly grateful for the stuff that you're doing and not particularly humble about being given a crap job sitting in a garage recording voiceovers. But it actually stood me in really good stead. And it's the same when you become a tattoo apprentice. You know, you may have spent 10 years of your life, 20 years of your life, drawing and drawing and drawing and getting an art style and a set of skills together that only get you to the front door of the studio. Day one, you're given a mop and a kettle and you think, oh my God, I'm just like, I just want to be a tattooist. But the jobs that you're given on those first days that you then do for a year or two. I tell this to all my apprentices, if you set up every station in the studio and break it down every single day, every time it needs to be used, you will set up a station 200 times a month and you'll break it down 200 times a month. Now, in 10 years' time, when a tattoo is not going very well, because all of those things that you've done, you do them so much, they become second nature. It becomes like breathing, right? Like you can't, with a dirty gloved hand, reach to an ink bottle to pull it off a shelf because your brain will not allow you to do that because it's the correct practices have been ingrained into what you do. I laugh all the time whenever my guys are practicing on something with like an orange or a bit of practice skin and they still wear gloves because they, it, I said to them, why do you do that? You know, you don't need to if you don't want to. And they're like, oh, it just feels really weird to tattoo without that stuff. And that's because they've been taught properly and that stuff is now, it's just air to them. You know, that's how you work, you know, professionally. And all of these fundamentals that you learn that you think are inconsequential as you get little by little better, on that day, 10 years from now, when you're struggling to get a tattoo done, you just can't get the ink in, you can't get your lines crispy, you'll fall back on those fundamentals. And it's those times when you really realise what you learn in those early years. And that's why it's important to be humble about what you're doing and grateful for what you're getting, because what you're getting is the foundation of everything you're about to do. And you will come back to that foundational stuff again and again and again. It's invaluable and you should be grateful for it. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not easy to get your head around it at first when you've spent a year mowing lawns just to get to the front door of the studio for the privilege of making coffee for a bunch of musicians. But in retrospect, it was fantastic. It was the best thing that could possibly have happened. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. Probably wasn't as grateful for it at the time, but you know, <laughs> we all get there in the end and I hope you get there and I hope that this gives you some perspective on at least my take on it I'm not saying it's right or wrong I'm just saying it's my opinion and it won't hurt you to have a little bit of humility and gratitude for what you're doing and so with that this has been I Big to Differ and I've been Paul I hope this was helpful and I'll see you next month take care guys I Beg to Differ is available in video format on YouTube. 
in audio format wherever you listen to podcasts and in its written form in Total Tattoo magazine every issue.